This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello, very good afternoon to you today. All this week here on the Country Hour, you've been hearing the stories of Aboriginal people who worked really long hours doing some really hard work for very little pay, sort of between the 1800s and the 1970s as part of the wage control legislation in this state. And many of those are now part of a class action trying to get compensation, taking action against the state government for compensation for those uh, what's called stolen wages. Well, today, a different perspective, your chance to hear from, well, some memories and reflections, I guess, from one pastoralist whose family for many generations has been in the, the pastoral industry and farming too. And you'll hear those reflections on those times and this former pastoralist experience dealing with Aboriginal people on his property, the sort of conditions, the living arrangements, the sort of payments that were made at that time. That's after news headlines at half past 12 today. And also, you know, it was this time last week that you heard about a new record price being set for first cross use. Well, that's been smashed again this week, this time at Narra Court, with a pen of use going under the hammer for $472 each. That is up $24 on this time last week when the last record was set. More about that, that sale at Narra Court, later in the hour, just before the Woolmarket Report at one o'clock today. And as you heard yesterday, cattle producers are also enjoying something of a boom in prices at the moment. Surging demand from East Coast buyers just looking to restock after so many years of drought has really been the reason for the market being propelled to the heights that it is at the moment. But local producers are also taking advantage of reasonable late winter and spring rain to boost output. Richard Metcalf runs a cattle operation at Many Peaks, which is about an hour east of Albany, and he says the industry has hit a purple patch. The price is the best I've ever known by a fair bit. Both slaughter cattle, we supply one of the supermarket chains with slaughter cattle and, and those prices are the best we've ever had. And the store market is very strong, driven by eastern states' demand as they uh, restock after the drought over there. And when you talk about the tough seasons that you've faced in the past few years, did that force you to sell off perhaps a few more head than you would have otherwise? It did in, in that we had more empty cows than normal in in a number of those years and I would expect that again this year so you end up reducing your breeder numbers just by natural attrition from an increase of empty ones so our breeder herd was back a couple of hundred cows we we picked it up 100 and depending on this year's preg test we'll be back to hopefully back to our normal number. To what extent have you been able to take advantage of these prices or are you able to take advantage of these prices given those difficulties you've faced? Oh, well, we are. We're taking good advantage of them at the moment. 
We retained a lot of last year's calves because we weren't prepared to sell at that price and have grown them out to the heavier weights this year and cashed in on the on the better prices that are available now and this year's calf calf crop will be able to hopefully cash in on on the better prices as well. So how sustainable would you anticipate these sorts of prices are? Well, I guess you'd have to talk to the processors about that. From my my perspective, this is about where the prices need to be to keep a sustainable competitive business. We also have sheep and the last couple of years the sheep business has been well in front of the cattle business. The cropping businesses have also been very profitable of late. Grain prices are good. So the cattle industry these are these are prices that will keep people in the industry and I would suggest attract people into the industry as well. There will be some herd expansion. So I, I, I'm of the opinion that this is, this is where the prices need to be for a long-term sustainable industry. Mini Peaks cattle producer Richard Metcalf with Daniel Mercer. ABC WA 10 past 12 here on the Country Hour. And there's a sense of relief from pastoralists that Western Australia's borders are going to reopen tonight. In the north of the state, mustering is winding up and interstate workers can now travel home. But pastoralists are already thinking ahead at recruitment for next season. Head of the Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association, Luke Simpkins, says an open border gives everyone a bit more certainty. Well, people are recruiting right now for station hands, ringers, to come up for the next dry season. So after you know, basically March onwards, we need to have confidence that people can get across the borders where, if that's where they come from. Uh, and so this is absolutely uh, a good news because it's been a difficult last 12 months with regard to uh, restrictions on staff coming in or at least during the dry season. Yeah, it is a, a sense of relief uh, that we can see a way forward for sure. So, you know, this more flexible approach, this smart approach, uh, is certainly paying benefits because now we can get people from the Northern Territory or from Queensland and it's a much more straightforward process. How important is it to have access to some of those um, skill bases which, which perhaps you know aren't easy to find in, in Western Australia? Well, it, it is important to be able to get uh, people that know what they're doing to come in. Otherwise, the muster can be delayed, uh, costs can be uh, increased and in, in, to a degree, uh, viability issues start to come into it as well. It, it's difficult enough to get the right people. Cooks and ringers do, to do the muster. Uh, it's difficult all the way around in any circumstances and to retain them, etc. But um, you know, at least through uh, having this uh, more flexible approach to the borders, there's a way forward for people to come from almost anywhere in the country now to help out in these regards. And it's good for them and it's obviously good for uh, the stations as well. Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association CEO Luke Simpkins just talking about the cattle industry's relief that WA's border will be opening at midnight tonight, 12 past 12. The WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. There's a sense of hope that a class action launched against the WA government will result in compensation and lost earnings for decades of unpaid labour forced on Indigenous people in this state. 
That's how Steve Kinane is reading the situation anyway. He's a Matamata man from the East Kimberley and he's a writer and researcher currently working for the Kimberley Aboriginal Law and Cultural Centre. Steve, your grandmother was one of thousands of Indigenous people affected by the legislation that was in place until, well, the 1970s. What do you know of her story? Oh, well, we know quite a bit about my grandmother's story. Jessie Argyle wrote a book called Shadow Lines in which her and my, my grandfather, Karia, non-Aboriginal grandfather, Edward Smith, documented their lives in the community. But um, I think we also know a lot about her life, apart from the fact that we share these stories, is that we researched our family history and we also accessed her personal file back in 1988. And there are some 18,000 personal files still in existence that were kept by the Aborigines Department on Aboriginal people such as my grandmother uh, and my mother as well and other family members. And they were a rich source of information about exactly how the Department of Aboriginal Affairs, later the Native Welfare Department, controlled people's lives. How challenging was it to be able to access the personal files? Well, interestingly, back in 88, um, I was quite young, was only 20, 21, and um, sort of stumbled upon them at the old Aboriginal Affairs Planning Authority Library. Uh, Thankfully, we had wonderful historians like Anna Habick, Marianne Jebb, Neville Green, who'd gone before us, and they were just starting to produce texts that people like myself who had, I suppose, oral history to rely on would then be able to draw from the rich sorts of research that they'd completed. But um, I literally came across the library working as a pushbike career and asked, oh, what's this place? And the librarian there, Jenny Carter, said, well, this has got lots of information about Aboriginal families. So he's got talking and I applied for my grandmother's file. And um, at that stage, not many people had. So it was, in some ways, we were test cases. And they had a wonderful fellow named Harry Taylor, a Noongar man from Eunorcia, who was employed as a kind of a liaison officer. And in that early period, he made sure that Aboriginal families got access to every bit of information that was in their files. He also made sure to sit down with family members and the individuals who had documented it, if it was their file or their grandchildren. Um, but that changed over time. Once more and more of us, once hundreds of us started accessing their files because we shared this information amongst ourselves, then it became more difficult to access these files to the point where in the early noughties or the 2000s, the state government actually became quite... I would say belligerent uh, under the the then coalition government and they used freedom of information policies as a way of making it harder to access these files. And this was, of course, after the Bringing Them Home report in 1985 uh, in which the state government actually received some $3.5 million to help digitise these archives to make them more accessible to Aboriginal community members. So... There is certainly uh, some push and some pull there and it is certainly a politicised space. What sort of information is in those files? Okay, well, in my grandmother's file, which covers her life from when she left the Swan Native and Half-Caste Mission around 1918 until after Mr Neville left office in the 1940s, it goes up to about 47, 48. But particularly it covers her life as a domestic servant where she was trained in the mission, then put in the Moriv Native Settlement and then sent out, as many women were who were removed from their country, to work as domestic servants for non-Aboriginal families. And it documents some 320 pages of letters, judgments, surveillance, trust accounts, her desire to access her money, their desire to control how much she got, what she didn't get, 
Uh, it also details exactly how much she got. So, for instance, when she was earning up to a pound a week, which was when she was earning as much as a, a very experienced domestic worker got, domestic Aboriginal worker got in those days, generally 75% would be retained by the department and she would receive about 25%. We heard earlier in the week from 93-year-old Maisie Weston. Uh, she was born near Katanning. She's a Gorang woman of the Noongar Nation in WA's Great Southern. And she was telling a story probably similar to your grandmother's about how she was sent off to various different farms around Western Australia's Southwest Land Division and just spoke about how lonely she was. Do you get a sense of that loneliness from your grandmother in the detail of those files? Yeah, you do. And you also get a real sense of the employers because there are letters to the department about my grandmother, often different to how they were engaging with her. Not all employers. Some employers she had really good relationships with. Uh, some families we've retained relationships with since. But by and large, where there were those who, who were not happy with her or just seemed to have a, um, a kind of an ingrained racist streak, um, that would come out in the letters as well. But as an example, um, my grandmother was keen to purchase clothing. That would have to be a request that was made to Mr Neville. And Mr Neville would then decide on what that clothing would be. And there are items such as underwear, undergarments, aprons, shoes, stockings, these things all had to be applied for through the department, through her own trust account for money that they held in trust for her, but they decided whether or not she got to access it. And it's true that the file also documents her loneliness and her vulnerability, but she was also a strong woman, as many of these women were. And they also, it doesn't document it, but we also have our own oral histories, thankfully, of my grandmother, aunties, other people, which shows that people were aware that there was this overt system and they also worked to subvert it wherever they could. And this has been documented by Mrs Alice Nanner in her book, When the Pelican Laughed. Uh, Nan since passed away. She was a great friend of my grandmother's, both were in Moor River. Uh, and Nan talks about how women would get together at Government Gardens, which was down at the back of Government House, near Council House in WA, in Perth. And they would head up to 57 Murray Street, which was the Aborigines Department headquarters. And they would each go in separately to try and get any money they could from their account for any reason. Uh, and then some would get knocked back, some wouldn't. And those that did get their money would then share it with each other. So people were certainly aware of the system, deadly aware of just how their lives were controlled, but also work to subvert it where they could. From the stories that we've heard this week, just listening to those details, it seems quite a, a contrast between the men and the women, uh, the women telling the story of the, the loneliness and the really hard work. I mean, they're, they're working from a very young age too. But by contrast for the men, a lot of them were on their country on their land, and there did seem to be an element of loving that aspect of it, even though they were getting a, a token wage in some cases, even if they were getting no wage, um, they were getting something to eat each day, working incredible long hours. I mean, Len Mary, a 71-year-old Wadjuri man, was saying that you know he was working from three o'clock in the morning to nine at night, but the fact that he was on his country really meant something to him anyway. Yeah, and I think in WA what's really different there is, of course, the difference to the way in which people were employed. So women were employed under permit. 
So to employ an Aboriginal person, you actually had to pay a permit to the Aborigines Department, which lasted 12 months, and that was around five shillings. So firstly, not only did they decide where you would work, who you would work for, what rate you would work at, how much you would receive, how much they would take, what they would spend it on. Uh, in my grandmother's case, when she was sent to Moor River against her will, she paid for the policewoman who escorted her on the train to Moor River and back, and that's documented in her files. So the trust accounts were plundered by the department and used as part of its operational apparatus. It wasn't kept in trust for her to use in some way in the future. But in terms of men, you're right, men were sent out often to work as farm labourers in the southwest in the Gascoigne. Uh, once you get onto the stations, though, and particularly in the Kimberley, which is an area we've also looked into great detail into, people weren't employed so much as individuals anymore, is that there was a, a kind of a an acceptance that it was a semi-slavery semi subordinate system. And there are many parliamentarians who even made, are quoted in history as having made those sorts of comments, whereby it would be that a station would pay a group permit to employ a very large number of people. To do that, there would be an assumption they would provide clothing, provide shelter, provide food, provide medical treatment and so on, which of course was never followed up on. There were no resources to do that. So the reality was the government was the broker of people's wages, but it never did anything, best I can tell, to follow up on people's complaints about their employment or to follow up on the treatment that people were receiving. If anything, it tended to turn a blind eye. But you're right, men often do talk about their life on uh, pastoral leases, particularly in the Kimberley, um, the station days, with a, you know, a great deal of pride in their work and in their comradeship and in their ability to be on their country. And also in wet season, part of the reason we do have the Kimberley Aboriginal Law and Culture Centre is that every wet season people would go out on country and they would uphold their law. And so that's been vital to being able to achieve native titles. So there are those sorts of complex aspects to this period that are also coming to the fore. What do you think is going to be the outcome of this class action this time around uh, in this current environment? How hopeful are you that this will be addressed adequately this time around? Look, I'm personally very hopeful. I have no inside knowledge to give you other than to point at these things. When Ben White first came into office, he made sure that access to people's family histories through the personal files and the administrative files was made far more, um, they were made far more available. So investment was made in ensuring that those digitised files were able to be accessed by family members. So in that period of time, people have been able to access more information. So that's a certain level of transparency. Two, it was a plank of the Labor Party when they came in that they would deal with this issue. I think also, very recently, uh, the Treasurer has come out saying that it is most likely that the government would be seeking, at least, to settle this in some way out of court. And so clearly they're making noises that they do want to see it resolved. It was a part of their own policy platform for for election and also they've acted in such a way as to ensure that the evidence should be more available to people, you know, the actual evidence of what took place. So in that sense, I, I feel quite hopeful that there will be some common sense that prevails and this issue is able to be given the kind of honesty and sense of justice that it requires. Because, of course, another key recommendation beyond issues of reparation from that stolen wages task force was the need for truth-telling, was the need for education, was the need for um, a wider scheme whereby people who are immediately affected and their descendants might be able to 
have the kind of involvement around issues of education and so on. So it's not just about the personal reparation, but it's about the community impact. Steve, it's been great to talk to you here on the Country Hour today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Steve Kinane, he's a Mata Mata man from the East Kimberley and his take on this class action and the stolen wages issue. This is The Country Hour, ABC WA, 25 past 12. Still to come, taking a look at iron ore prices, which have bounced back a little bit, a new record price for first cross use, and then off to the wool market just before the news at one. The wool market up a little bit this week, just holding firm at the moment, and Alice Wilson will go through the details before the news at one. First, though, it is difficult to know exactly how many Aboriginal people were affected by the wage control legislation that started in the late 1800s and continued until the 1970s. But Jan Sadler, head of class action at Shine Lawyers, who's been working on the case for about three years now, thinks it could be between seven to 8,000 people. She says at this stage, more than 1,000 people have registered to be part of the class action launched against the WA government for lost earnings. She says if you think you might be eligible to join the class action, there are a couple of categories for you to consider. So you're eligible to join the class action if you personally had your wages not paid to you or they were paid to you in part but not fully or were withheld by the government on trust for you and you've never had them paid to you. That's the first category. The second category of, of people are those people whose family members were the subject of that legislation and they know that their family members' wages were either never paid to them, paid to them in part, or paid but withheld by the government. Jan Sadler says the class action was lodged in the federal court last month. We are listed to have what's called a case management hearing before the judge who is going to case manage this case in early December. And we expect at that time that the court will make some orders around a defence being filed by the state of WA, uh, some orders around some evidence to be put before the court as to the individual circumstances of our lead applicant and perhaps some other people, and also to require the parties to exchange all of the documents that they have between them that are relevant to these issues. So that may be quite a large task for the state of WA, as we expect that there are a lot of records that they have in relation to these trust accounts and the use of the money that'll be really important for us to see as part of this action. So that's the beginning of December. Uh, We will be before the court. She says it hasn't been easy getting material to support the claim, but evidence in documentary form is not always required. The strong oral histories of the people who have joined this class action so far tell a very compelling case and uh, we rely heavily upon that as strong evidence of what has actually happened here. Are they as strong to a judge, though, in in a court of law as the uh, original documentation? Strong oral evidence can be as compelling as documentary evidence and that's something that the judge hearing this case, if we get to a hearing, will have to weigh up. What are the different outcomes that are possible here? through this class action? 
Jess, most class actions settle. That's the case. But not all class actions settle. And so uh, we would hope that after seeing the uh, state of WA's defence in this case and the court is likely to order a mediation at uh, a relatively early stage, then we expect that the parties will get together and try and negotiate an outcome. That's the ordinary course of events in every class action. And I wouldn't think that this class action would be any different in that regard. Jan Sadler, head of class action at Shine Lawyers. And I thought you might also like to hear from the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, Ben Wyatt. So that call was made, but he wanted you to know that because it's all before the courts, he'd rather not make comment at this stage anyway. Still to come, uh, you're going to hear from a pastoralist who has a a really uh, great memory and some great reflections to share with you. Because up until this point, you've heard from the lawyers, you've heard from the researchers, historians, and some of the Aboriginal people who experienced this firsthand, who worked those long hours and really hard work for little or no pay. But what was the pastoralist's perspective on this time. Well, after news headlines and across to the Bureau of Meteorology, you're going to catch up with Bruce Robinson, who ran a Urilla station just north of Kalgoorlie from the 1960s to 1995. He was in charge there, but he grew up there too because um, that's where his parents were. So he's got a lot of memories on this time about the interaction, the relationships between the pastoralists and the Indigenous people that worked on his place. That's to come here on The Country Hour. Half past 12, Tony Carr is here with an update from the newsroom. Good afternoon, Belinda. The WA Health Minister says measures are in place to keep the state safe from COVID-19 as it moves to a controlled border from midnight tonight. Roger Cook says every traveller will need a G2G pass to declare if they have symptoms of COVID-19, undergo a health screening and temperature test upon arrival. Travellers may also be subject to COVID-19 testing if deemed necessary by a health officer. Meanwhile, the federal government has released its coronavirus vaccine strategy, revealing there will be a national system to monitor immunisation levels and people's individual vaccination status. Vaccines will initially be handed out to three priority groups, those at increased risk of exposure, including health and aged care workers, those working in critical jobs and those at an increased risk of contracting COVID-19. And the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, says Australians must brace for more extreme weather and the nation must be more resilient in the face of natural disasters. Disasters. The federal government's released its response to the recommendations from the Natural Disaster Royal Commission. It's planning to introduce legislation before Christmas to give the Commonwealth the power to declare a national state of emergency. Belinda, I'll be back with some more news at one o'clock. Tony, thank you very much for that. It is 29 to 1. G'day, this is Hamish McTaggart from Vigimire Station and this is the Country Hour on the ABC. And it's good to have you along this afternoon. Before the news at one, record prices for those first cross use. And then Alice Wilsden along with a wrap of the wool market, which is holding its own at the moment, despite the tensions between Australia and our number one wool market, China. Prices up just a little bit. Alice with the details before one o'clock. Right now off to the Bureau of Meteorology and a catch up with Steph Bond. Steph, is there much rain about the South West Land Division this afternoon? Uh, afternoon, Belle. 
There, there is a little bit, actually. We've had that cold front move through the southwestern parts uh, this morning, and now that is moving into the central and northern parts this afternoon, where we still might get a few millimetres from those showers moving through. Um, but the showers will start to ease um, through the central parts overnight tonight. Um, but tomorrow uh, morning and early afternoon, we may get some uh, thickening of the cloud and maybe some more rainfall through the central wheat belt, the lower west and sorry, the central west and also the southeast coastal. Um, and that's all before a second cold front moves up through the southwest parts of the southwest land division uh, during the afternoon and evening. So we may get some thunderstorms also uh, southwest of a line from around uh, Lancelin down to Bremer Bay uh, with the cold front in the morning and afternoon but there's also a chance of a shower or storm in the southeast coastal district uh, in the afternoon and evening as well. Um, so rainfall figures for tomorrow uh, through the central west and central wheat belt we could see figures of around five to ten millimetres um, depending where you are. It's a pretty maybe thin band of that uh, more higher figure but elsewhere uh, we're looking at maybe two to five millimetres uh, and then if you're along the lower west and southwest districts um, we're looking at around maybe five to 15 millimetres and if you're through the great southern and uh, kind of the areas between Albine Esperance we're probably looking at two to five millimetres uh, with that system moving through. Um, but as uh, Sunday approaches we will see those showers and storms uh, contract to pretty much be along the south coast between Cape Lewin and Israelite Bay maybe an isolated thunderstorm uh, between Albion and Esperance during the morning period before they clear off. Uh, but the re remainder of the Southwest Land Division on Sunday is going to be uh, just partly cloudy, uh, but milder temperatures uh, with that cold front moving through. And by the time we get to Monday, we do have a uh, ridge developing over the southern parts of the state. So we're pretty much looking at some um, isolated showers uh, along the far southwest coast area between Cape Nat and Albany um, but we won't get much rainfall out of that maybe just one millimetre and on Tuesday uh, we're looking at a trough through central parts of the southwest land division and uh, just partly cloudy conditions throughout there. Uh, I might say on the Tuesday we do have some heat moving into the eastern parts of the southwest land division and some gusty north to northwesterly winds which will increase fire dangers as well to the eastern side of that trough. How's it looking into northern and eastern parts then Steph? In the north and east, uh, in the Kimberley region, we've got our usual afternoon showers and storms in the north and west for tomorrow and Sunday. And that heat does remain through the Kimberley and the Pilbara region uh, right into early next week. Uh, tomorrow, we will have an extensive area of severe fire conditions right from the Pilbara, extending down through the northeast Gascoigne, the south interior and into the Eucla. And that's just due to some hot, dry and gusty northwesterly winds through there. Uh, that area contracts eastwards on Sunday though to be just mainly in the south interior. Uh, otherwise it's just clear conditions for the rest of the north and east on Sunday. On Monday we do get those showers and storms throughout the entire Kimberley and extending down into the north interior um, and by Tuesday those showers and storms are extending into the west 
sorry, the eastern Pilbara and also the western parts of the South Interior. And once again, we've got some increased fire dangers through the Gascoigne Pilbara goldfields. Uh, and due to the, some hot, dry and gusty northwesterly winds on Tuesday um, due to a trough down the west coast. And warnings this afternoon, Steph? Uh, we currently have a fire weather warning uh, through parts of the interior for severe fire conditions for today uh, and a coastal wind warning at the moment for the Eucla coast. Um, and tomorrow we will issue a warning for those fire conditions through most of the interior as well. Thank you, Steph. It's 23 to 1. Richard Hudson, how much rain has there been around the state? Yeah, nothing at all in the northern and eastern forecast districts, but in the southwest land division, uh, the central west, no real rain at all, but in the lower west, Ankertel's 8, Bickley 14, Bungandore 11, Chidlow 5, Dwelling Up 7, Kijigan Up 9, Jinjin West 7, Glen Eagle 8, Jandicott, Jarradale and Carragullan North all had 10, Mandurah 7, Millenden and Moondarbrook 5, Mount Solar 6, Mushay 10, Mundaring 7, Pinjarra 5, Rolly Stone 10, Serpentine 7, Wanneroo 7 to 8, Waroona 10, Werribee 5 and Whiteman Park 9. In the southwest, Acton Park, Bridgetown and Bustleton all had 5 mils, Beetle Up 9, Brunswick Junction 6, Cape Lewin 8, Capel North and Carlotta 6, Chapman Hill Road 5, Kawarram Up 8, Darden Up had 6 to 9, Donnybrook 7 to 9, Ferguson Valley and Happy Valley Alert Station 6, 4 Acres 9, Harvey 11, Hintybrook 10, Jarrowwood 9, Carrydale, Loguebrook and Ludlow all had five. Manjum up five to six. Margaret River 11. Millie Annup and Mount William 10. Mile up six. Nan up five. Newland seven. Northcliffe six. Pemberton five. Quinn and up had six. Rosabrook 10. Scott River nine. Shannon and Thompson Brook both had seven. Vass Highway five. Willie Abrup six. Windy Harbour seven. Witchcliffe and Warner Glen both had eight. Yungarill up six and the same for Yordamung Lake. And then in the southern coastal, central Wheatbelt and Great Southern regions, lots of farms received one to four mils, but nothing more. Thanks for that, Richard. 22 to 1. And all this week you've been hearing stories from Aboriginal people who were affected by the WA government's wage control legislation that started in the late 1800s and continued until the 1970s. And you've been listening along, which is great. Uh, Paul Michael in Bolgert says, here we go again. Lefty old auntie ABC promoting white guilt regarding Aboriginal people. Notice how ABC never interviews balanced Indigenous people on this subject matter, such as Jacinta Price and Warren Mundine. Could it be they don't fit the ABC agenda? Asked Paul Michael in Bolgert. And this from Steve, again, a one-sided Aboriginal story. I'm appalled. Absolutely no effort has gone into getting facts. Only people's memories from so long ago and not applying 2020 political correctness to this emotive conundrum, says Steve. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four to be part of the conversation. On Monday, you heard Len Mary's story. He's a 71-year-old Wadgery man who worked on a lot of stations in the Murchison region. He told you that he loved working on his country, but it would have been nice to have been paid properly for the long hours and the hard work. You also heard from 93-year-old Maisie Weston, a goring woman of the Noongar Nation in WA's Great Southern, 
who was a teenager, worked across farms in the South West Land Division. And she told you how lonely she was and how hard she worked. But one group you haven't heard from at this point is the pastoral industry. So to wrap up this feature on the stolen wages, I want you to get that pastoralist perspective on these years. Bruce Robinson grew up on Urilla Station, 145 kilometres north of Kalgoorlie. And when he finished school, he returned to the station and ran it from 1960 to 1995. Bruce, what are your memories of the Aboriginal people that lived and worked on Urilla Station? Uh, look, I was brought up uh, and I've, I, my family just from memory, have always been associated and interacting with Aboriginal people. My father was brought up with them in the Pilbara. My grandfather was brought up with them out in the Brookton area and I was brought up with them on Urilla, on the golf fields, the Wongai people. So right from when I was born, uh, I knew the Aboriginal people and more importantly at that time they knew me. And so they had had a great interest in us children and my sisters and myself and uh, they were a, a, a wonderful people, very friendly and with a great sense of humour, but they were always interested in how we were doing and they came along every year for shearing. They only came for a few weeks a year at shearing, but they would come along and if we ever ran into them anywhere in Kalgoorlie around, they'd ask how everyone in the family was going and for years afterwards, when they had stopped coming there, they would talk about what a wonderful time they used to have as young people camping on Urilla and mustering. So I have a long associated right back to when I was a young child playing with Aboriginal children on Urilla, and then later on going out mustering with them, camping out in the bush, riding horses and uh, going mustering where they taught me a lot about bushcraft, about tracking, about edible plants that were there. And they also showed me some bits of Aboriginal lore and stories and where Aborigines had camped. They could show me where the old campfires were and where there were certain stone placements. So... I learned a lot from the Aborigines and I had a great respect for them and uh, and I think uh, we had respect for each other. But eventually the world changed a little bit initially and in fact right from the 1930s up there before I was born, we would have a group of Aboriginal boys, they were originally, that came down from Schenck's Mission up at Mount Margaret every year to do the mustering and they gradually grew up and married and they came along with their families so by the time I was 12, 13, camping out with them, we would have um, four or five Aboriginal musterers uh, who had been coming to Urilla for years. And uh, in the camp at the homestead, we would have, we'd be probably supporting 25 people, the uncles and aunts, the retired people, the kids. And they were all fed and uh, fed by the station, by our family. Uh, and uh, these uh, four or five musters who were riding would come out in the camp. And they, so that's what happened every year for years and years. But eventually a couple of things happened. One, it became less efficient to muster by horses. Horses and horse feed were costing money and the time it took to muster the station was starting to... Uh, be replaced by more efficient methods 
And the other thing that happened, of course, which should be familiar, is that the Aborigines during the 60s were, were granted their full uh, rights, which which meant that uh, they were to be paid full wages and uh, they had to have uh, proper built accommodation rather than movable camp accommodation. And so, how, did, how did that change things then, Bruce? Because that's when well, you went back well, to your real estation from 1960 when you finished school and you came back to run Urilla from 1960 to 1995. And with that legislation coming into effect, the equal pay, etc., as you've just explained, how did that change things? Well, what it meant was that stations were reluctant to support the 25 or 30 camp followers that came with their Aboriginal uh, musterers. So if they were going to uh, want five musterers, that's all they wanted. And they would be prepared to pay them the, the full salary that they were put, they were required to be paid, but it didn't suit the the style of the Aboriginal, the nomadic Aboriginal people at the time. And the other thing, of course, was it, it was a bit to do with the affliction of time. Those older Aborigines I'm talking about that had been with us for 15, 20 years, coming along since they were kids, were now getting to sort of. Um, retirement age and the younger people weren't interested so much in the station life so several things were happening at the same time that mitigated against the sole style mustering system of working there was need for a bit more efficiency the fact that some of the older aborigines were now getting to retirement age and the newer ones weren't really interested in the country life because they were being brought up on missions or in towns and seeing other attractions and uh, of course alcohol also became an issue around about that time so it became more difficult to get the same sort of system that we had for employing aborigines another thing that was that we told the native welfare people who came around they said you have to build permanent accommodation for the aboriginal people and we said well we've known aboriginal people for many, many, many years, and uh, if somebody stays in those, and these are the old people, that you know, if somebody dies that's lived in that accommodation, they won't live in it again. And they said, that's ridiculous, but it wasn't ridiculous. Uh, people that did build accommodation found out in a couple of years' time that the Aborigines wouldn't go in it, and they were camping out on the ground, so outside. So all of these little things combined to make it more difficult to employ Aborigines the way we used to. And at the same time, as I said, one of the issues was efficiency. Horses, getting people to ride horses were getting more difficult. So we started to move to motorbikes and uh, some people were capable of riding motorbikes, others weren't, some people didn't like the style. So to sort of move the story very much ahead, one of the great changes over my lifetime you talk about me being there from my working life from 1960 to 1995 in 1960 we would have had five or six musters on horses mustering our property and it would have taken about 10 weeks on average by the time i finished in 1995 it took 10 days to muster the same operation using four motorbikes an airplane and two-way radios so the efficiency issue was one of the big issues as well. Bruce, how do you reflect then on the current class action 
that's been taken against the Western Australian government by Aboriginal people who are trying to get some sort of compensation for what they call the, the stolen wages or for working very hard and long hours on some of the farms and stations around Western Australia and not getting the equal pay at the time, sort of up until the 1970s. There's about a 1,000 people in, currently in that class action. How do you reflect on that action that's being taken for those so-called stolen wages? Well, there was apparently, and I, I'm certainly not aware of it, but there was a government organisation that presumably retained the wages of some Aboriginal workers, perhaps up in the north of the state and perhaps in the south. I must say I wasn't familiar with it and I didn't know. I know I can certainly tell you that the Aborigines that worked for us nomadically for a few weeks weren't paid a lot of money, but in return we supported all of their families uh, that were travelling with them in the camps. And this was the issue right through the state. It happened in the Kimberleys as well, right right through the whole of the parcel areas, I would think. So, no, they weren't paid a lot of money, but they were well looked after. They were well fed. They were well treated. Nobody was uh, badly treated in the time that I can talk about. And as far as historically goes, you know, my family is a were associated with Aborigines right back from the 1840s. They always interacted with them. They realised that the Aborigines had knowledge that would be useful to them and so they they got on with Aborigines and Aborigines got on with them. And I've had nothing but good relationships with them. I can tell you that when I when we didn't have any of them working on Yorilla when they'd long gone and retired to the local towns, uh, I would bump into them and they would many times talk to me about how what a wonderful time they had working on Yorilla when they were young. There was no organisation that I was aware of that retained wages. I, I don't remember that happening at all. We just paid them uh, some cash. We had it. I've seen the old station books. There were names in there. They were paid a certain amount of cash plus some clothes and uh, they were fed and so were all their family and the group that knocked around with them were fed and that's how they were, uh, that was their retainer, I guess, or their payment. So you think they were adequate terms and you, you don't think that this class action, looking back over the years to try and get back some sort of compensation at this time. Are you a, a supporter of the case or, or not? Well, look, I, I don't really have any opinion on it. I, I, if you look at back from today's world and see what happened 20, 50, 100 years ago, you might think you might do things differently, but uh, it's pre- I'm reluctant to uh, put today's values on things that happened back then. People did things what that they had to do as far as as long as they did it with kindness uh, and respect I don't think that there was a problem and I as far as I'm aware in most cases we did that they will I guess Aboriginal people will have to uh, act as the way that they feel that they should and try and, and if they think that they haven't been treated well they'll appeal to this tribunal and presumably a, a ruling will be made. Bruce, it's been so lovely to just spend some time with you this afternoon here on the Country Hour and and listen to your reflections. Thank you so much. Thank you, Belinda. Bye.
Bruce Robinson, who lives in the city today but grew up on Urilla Station north of Kalgoorlie. And then when he finished school, he went back to run the station from 1960 to 1995. 8 to 1 here on the Country Hour on ABC WA. The Grain Industry Association of Western Australia has just released its latest crop report. It says canola, barley, lupins and even the small amount of wheat that's been harvested all seem to be yielding 10 to 20% more than expected. Report author Michael Lamont says if that trend continues as harvest moves south, the final figures for this season might end up being higher than first thought. He also says with the recent rain, most farmers are now concerned about grain quality deteriorating. He says in the northern grain growing regions, there's concern about fungal staining in wheat. And in the south, the concern is for the barley and the oats. Seven to one, shortly a wrap of the wool market and record prices for those first cross ewes. And worldwide, 100 million lambs have their tails removed to prevent fly strike. Males are also castrated. And while the most common process is bloodless, it's not pain free. So this week, Landline takes a close look at a new device that aims to change that. Across the world, there's over 100 million lambs that are tail docked and castrated. So the current method is that farmers generally just put a tight rubber ring on the tail and the the testes, and uh, the animals experience some acute pain, ischemia, for the first hour. And uh, that was the the, the problem that we were looking to solve. Called numbnuts, the device applies the rubber rings, but also administers an anesthetic. How are you doing? Hello, David. Sarah. Oh, how are you doing, Sarah and Robin? <laughs> David and Sarah Fish run about 20,000 sheep on their property at Mutterborough. I'm looking forward to, to seeing how it works on, on your lambs. Right, here you go. So if we're wanting to sell our product, whether it be wool or, or, or protein in the form of, of meat to the world, yeah, we need to be seen to be following world best practices. And obviously this is becoming recognised as, as best practice. Tune in to Landline on ABC Television this Sunday at half past 12 to see Helena Bachkovsky's full story on Numbnuts. And I believe it's going to be Kerry Lonigan's last appearance. And that'll be a big moment. He's been there since the start of the show. Six to one here on the Country Hour. And just before a wrap of the wool market, records are tumbling for sheep prices. The national first cross ewe price record has again been smashed with ewes from the Kulawang Pastoral Company selling for $472 at Narracourt yesterday. That's $24 higher than the previous record, which was set at Bendigo just last Friday. And it's $70 above the national record set a year ago. Will Nolan is chair of the Narracourt Combined Agents Association and says it was a Mount Gambia buyer who was prepared to pay the record prices for the big, well-presented ewes. Yeah, I think the mood was pretty good coming into the sale. I think everyone sort of had a, not an expectancy, but a thought that it was going to be stronger than last year, especially um, after hearing Bendigo result last week. There was certainly going to be some some um, excitement coming into the day. So there was a pretty big buying gallery here, perhaps slightly less than last year because of the um, the COVID restrictions still, but um, plenty of buying support. Um, we had the online service through Stock Live available too. So um, 
they uh, they quite comfortably reached the top price too. So um, it wasn't neck and neck. It was they were they were certainly out front. And they were the outlier, but still, uh, the dozens of lots over four hundred dollars went there. Yeah, it's very rare to see them come under um, four hundred dollars, especially on those bigger, heavier um, lines of ewes, and uh, particularly the the noted breeders. There were only a percentage of ewes sold in that sort of. 350 to 400 range, and yeah, very rare to see them under that. Well, Nolan, he's the chair of the Court Combined Agents Association, speaking to Angus Verley, talking about that record price for first cross use, $472 each at Court yesterday. And this time last week, you heard from Chris Patmore, who runs the Riverbend Pole Dorset and Border Leicester Studs in Yabba here in WA. And he's got the local record, the WA record, with a line of sheep selling for $290 a head. Three minutes to one. To the wool market, which held up this week. The Eastern Market indicator was up one cent to finish at 1189 cents a kilo clean and the western market indicator up 24 cents to close at 1241 cents a kilo clean Alice Wilsden can you run through the market details with an initial 42,000 bales allocated for sale, only 37,512 bales ended up being offered this week, with large withdrawals over all selling centres prior to sale, as well as past ins during the sale, limited buyers to a smaller selection and actively helped to increase buying activity. Tuesday saw 15% being passed in and a softer market over east of between 17 to 56 cents back. Fremantle, being three hours behind, was able to gain buyer attention when they weren't able to fill orders east and helped the market to remain relatively unchanged for the day. Wednesday again saw further big withdrawals over the selling centres and a further 8.5% was passed in. Buyer activity increased with a shrinking offering and the market was able to post gains of between 23 to 68 cents. Here in Fremantle, we initially had over 11,000 bales allocated for sale, but with 25% being withdrawn on the Tuesday and nearly 30% of the fleece wools out, only 3,679 bales were offered on the day. With a further 11% passed in and buyers struggling to fill orders on a shrinking volume over east, it helped to gain attention here and the market remained relatively unchanged. Wednesday, only 5,365 bales were offered and saw a further 14% being withdrawn and 6% was passed in, which helped lift some activity and gains of 30 to 40 cents was felt. Finishing quotes of Fremantle. 18 micron finished at 1,592 cents, which is up 45 cents. 19 micron finished at 1,412 cents, which is up 46 cents. 20 micron finished at 1,274 cents, which is up 43 cents. And the 21 micron finished at 1,227 cents, which was up 31 cents. The main buyers on Tuesday in the West were PJ Morris and Devil Exports and Tech Wool Trading. Wednesday main buyers were PJ Morris, Tech Wool Trading and Endeavour Wool Exports. Next week we'll see 40,539 bales being offered nationally and Fremantle will have 7,932 bales being offered over the two days. Thank you very much for that, Alice. Alice Wilsden going through the wool market this week, which is certainly holding its own at the moment. I just heard back from ABC TV's landline team, and I did tell you just a moment ago that Kerry Lonigan, this would be his final landline appearance. Uh, That's not going to be the case. It looks like Kerry Lonigan won't be presenting the market report this week. The head of the program is saying they had planned to run a tribute piece for Kerry Lonigan's farewell, but he said he didn't want that. He'd prefer that not to happen. 
This has been The Country Out. Great to catch up with you today on ABC WA. Time now for the latest ABC News. One o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.